0: Good morning, Rock Hills. Welcome. Glad you're here on Super Bowl Sunday. The fact you're here means you've achieved something. You've gotten your Super Bowl prep down to less than five and a half hours. So I'm very, uh, very impressed. We're continuing today through our uh, book, the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be talking about how Jesus is our high priest. When Adam assigned this to me, um, he... Yes. Ah, okay. (laughs) Okay. Also, very important if you're in vertical, vertical has been dismissed. The high priestess of vertical is walking out the back. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, walking out the back that way. So, we are um, talking about how Jesus, our high priest, when I was signed this by Adam, he gave me something like 14. Verses that I could go through, and it's a little bit nostalgic for me because I'm only picking three. And I grew up in a church in Dallas that was associated with Dallas Seminary, and so we went very, very slowly through the Bible, every single word. So I feel like focusing on three words is going old school for me. But if you've got your Bibles or uh, on your phone, you can go to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses. 14 through 16, where it tells us that Jesus is our high priest. Now, um, I did not, uh, I wasn't Catholic growing up, and so the word priest to me when I was growing up, I always thought of this as kind of a fancy pastor. You know, I had a pastor, but a priest, he wore those those robes and it was kind of a little bit fancy in fact I don't know this from memory I know this from being told but when I was 4 my family went to visit my aunt and uncle's church and they're episcopal and so they have they have a priest and they even have a bishop and the bishop was visiting that Sunday and he was not only wearing the fancy robes he was wearing the mitre you know the fancy hat and my mom has told me like you leaned over very slowly not wanting to get his gaze and asked me Is that God? So uh, very fancy, fancier than I was used to. But I think the idea of a priest, there are two ideas, very similar to a pastor, very similar to what any leader of a church would do. They comfort people in their congregation. They provide comfort and instruction and lesson. But specifically, I think one thing about a priest is that a priest somehow intervenes between a person and God, either intervenes, intercedes, or I would say in our case, makes a case for us or represents us before God. That is what a priest does, represents. In the Old Testament, the priests made the sacrifices for the people, and their sacrifice was to cover their sins. So it was important that the priest was right with God and could represent them well before God. But you know, in our independent society, I don't think we have too many examples of this. So I was trying to think of when do we really have to depend on somebody in that way to make, to represent us. And I know Al is in the back raising his hand, going, lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. No, I've been working with Al on uh, uh, Arrogance Anonymous, so I feel like I can't can't, uh, pump him up in that way. So I was thinking of a situation that maybe you've encountered as well, that I've certainly encountered. Back in 2008, when I was 41, I went to the doctor, and they wanted me to take an EKG, which is where they measure the electrical activity of your heart, so he sends me to the room where the tech is, and the tech, who maybe was 19 but looked 12, is wiring me up, and she gets out the little strip that has the electrical waves, and she says, eh, yeah, you need to see your doctor before you leave. I'm like, uh, that's not good. <laughs> that, that's not good. So I went into the exam room, and I was sitting on, you know, the exam table that you could either lie down on or sit on onto the white paper, and my doctor, whom I very much like, comes in, to the room to talk to me about my test. Now, those of you who know me know I'm not a super touchy person, right? I'm not a big touchy person. I can fake it, but I'm not, you know, it's not my natural state to be super huggy, super touchy. And my doctor, on the other hand, who was four years younger than I am, he, he is, and he's got a great bedside manner because it actually doesn't bother me. He's skillful at that. He'll touch you on the shoulder and tell you stuff. But as he's going to tell me the results of this test, in one very swift motion, He jumps up, flips around, and sits by me on the exam table. And I'm like, I'm dead. I mean, (laughs) why why would he be doing this, sitting by me? He said, well, there's something about this that's confusing to us. It could be bad, but it could just be something about you. So I'd like you to go to a cardiologist and get a more... A specific test and so I went to the cardiologist and after I had the test he met with me and said okay two things are possible based on this test and I really felt like he chose the wrong one to tell me first one is that the lower wall of your heart has died or the test messed up I'm like can you start with the test messed up And he said, now, the test doesn't mess up much, but when it does mess up, it messes up in this way. And so I'd like to do something a little more definitive to see what's going on while we're getting these signals. And so I went in for a procedure called a heart catheterization. That's where they take, uh, they make a, uh, a hole in the artery in your thigh, put a camera in it, and work up your arteries into your heart so they can see what's going on. Now, this is actually not a super high risk procedure from what I understand, but it seemed to me more risky than just walking around, right? So it really made me think about who do I trust to represent me if I can't represent myself in this situation. Certainly, I trust Laura, but what if something, my wife, but what if something comes up, and she's really distraught and freaked out because she doesn't know, and she's Worried about making the right decision, who would I trust to make these decisions for me? Who would I trust if we were in an accident together, who had to make a life and death decision? Who would I trust maybe to tell the doctor, I disagree with what you're saying, I think what Stephen would want is something else? I mean, it's a very serious thing about having someone represent you in a situation like this, which, by the way, everything was fine, it was just, the test had messed up, and it was, you know, they couldn't see it, things were better than they'd even thought, so it was was okay, but um, I will say it made the eight-hour management training I had the day before the procedure the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done, but, uh, not really, but it was not very comfortable. So, A high priest, a priest represents us before God, and Jesus can perfectly represent us as high priest because he experienced the same temptations that we do, but didn't succumb to those temptations. He can represent us to God because he says, I know what it's like to face that temptation. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with your weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. Jesus knows us because he has been through the exact same temptations. Now, I want to say a few things about temptation because I think in society today, the biggest way we use the temptation is do you want dessert with your meal, right? That's how, are you tempted by a chocolate? I mean, so that's how we use it, but I think it's more important than that. And I want to say kind of what the Bible, how the Bible talks about temptation. First, the Bible is clear that God does not tempt God does not tempt us, which is something that like, it took me to look at the scripture to really realize that because I think, well, God might put something away to see how I do. No, he doesn't. So let's look at James chapter one, verses 13 to 15. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And let's read this next part because it's hard truth, but I think it's truth that will resonate with you. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. God does not entrap us into sinning. He does not put in front of us, a situation that we cannot possibly escape from. Situations come in front of us, and we, through our own choice, our own desire, are enticed by them. I really, I'm a movie fan, as many of you may know, and I really like this movie from 1998 called A Simple Plan. It is not a kid-friendly movie, but it's the story of these three guys, and it's very similar to what you see in this verse. It's the story of these three guys who find four million dollars, in cash that they think is untraceable that no one's going to come looking for they think it's criminal but they have this crazy reason that they have convinced themselves that no one's going to come looking for it so we will might as well take it think of all the good we could do with that money that no one's going to miss anyway and it starts this chain that we see in these verses about being enticed giving birth to sin and sin is worth the death They have to, of course, people come looking for the money, and they have to keep doing a little more criminality and a little more rule-breaking and just a little bit more. And because they've gone this far, they know if they get caught, they're going to jail, or maybe other people are going to come get them and kill them. So they actually, it leads to murder because they, but it leads to murder through a very gradual path, a very small set of steps. And I think this is what this verse is telling us. God does not put temptation in front of us, the reason we are tempted is because of our own evil desires. It also tells us in the Bible that Satan puts stumbling blocks, or the devil puts stumbling blocks in our way so that we will be tempted by desires. And now uh, I have to say that you may be a person out there, maybe this is your first time to even be exposed to any of God's stuff, and I'm already talking about Satan and the devil, please, right? I'm telling you, I would be in the exact same position as you if I, had, you know, if I hadn't studied scripture and if uh, I hadn't come to faith in Jesus and believe that the scripture is real and true and authoritative, I understand. So for my talk, when I talk about Satan, if you're one of these people that are like, I just can't believe in little devil men or something, that's fine. Just think of it as there is temptation out there, and we can worry later about why it's there, right? There is temptation. I think you'll find that these verses and talking about temptation are something that you can really relate to. So let's look at what scripture says about the power of temptation. This is 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you don't want to think about devil, it's like, it's out there, man. The temptation to be uh, enticed is out there and to do things that you know that are wrong. Resist him, the Bible says, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering, right? Temptation is not new. And the Bible is very clear on this over and over. Temptation is not new. You're not the only one suffering. it. And even Jesus, Jesus was tempted or had the stumbling block there. He didn't stumble, but he had the same stumbling block there. It's not due. It's ever present. In fact, in the scriptures in two different places, it talks about when Jesus was specifically tempted by the devil. Now, he went off into the wilderness for, um, and I believe, it doesn't say this directly, but I believe it's because God instructed him to do this, went off to the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of this, Satan comes to him and tempts him in the same ways that I think he tempts us or that we experience temptation today. The first thing he says, if you're God, turn this stone into bread and eat. And Jesus says, no, the scripture says, man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This first type of temptation that we face is temptation, I think, to satisfy our physical desires in a way that God says we shouldn't. The first way is to satisfy physical desires. I'm just narcissistic enough to like that. <laughs> uh, thank you, minion Daniel. That was awesome. Um, so the next—boy, that was a temptation for me, wasn't it? The next—the next temptation was he. Satan showed Jesus the um, Satan showed Jesus the governments of the world and said, "If you will only worship me, you can have all power that is available on the earth, because that has been granted." to me to give. And Jesus said, no, the scripture says you shall worship the Lord your God, only him will you serve. And this is, I think, the second type of temptation we faced, and that is temptation to have power or manipulate other people. Temptation to manipulate or have power or hurt other people. And the final way that Satan tempted Jesus was, he said, Okay, he took him to the top of the temple and said, if you're God, throw yourself off the top and save yourself because you're supposedly God, right? And Jesus answered, do not put your Lord, the scripture says, do not put your Lord to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And I think this form of temptation is when we are tempted to put ourselves in the place of God or to think of ourselves as our own God. Those are the kind of three temptations I think we face. And every single one of those was faced directly by Jesus, t- uh, temptation directly from Satan. And we see it again in, in this in Hebrews, where the verse I just read. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. He did not to come. Because Jesus faced this temptation, he can represent us very well before God the Father. He knows what we have done, it's not abstract for him. He knows the temptation that we have faced. Now, the Bible is full of people who are heroes of the faith who faced temptation. Some of them succeeded, but some of them failed, right? temptation is a common thing and even our heroes of the faith fail and we will fail too but one promise that we have from God that I think is very comforting is that God promises us that when we have temptation he will give us a way out of them so first Corinthians ten thirteen says this is a great verse this is a great verse if you're struggling it's a great verse to memorize actually I think Um, And because I've memorized it in the past, I'm going to try to read it in the exact version that's there, but the wrong words may slip out. (laughs) It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Have you ever heard stories of people who went through incredible pain for their faith in my church they would tell us stories like this you know like some story about how they were shooting people and someone you know just very dramatic stories and you would think to yourself I just don't know that I could do that I just don't know that I could I would be faithful under that circumstance well the promise we have here is then You're not going to be put in that circumstance because it says you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. You will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. God will not put you in that kind of circumstance and He will provide you a way out. But you know, even though God will provide us a way out, we're not going to always take it. We are going to fail. We are going to fail. And God, when we fail, if you've placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, God does not see your failure. He does not even recognize your sin. If you have placed your faith in his son, what he sees in his son, what his son, what God's, too many pronouns. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, what God sees is not your failure but his son's sacrifice. I'd like to look at Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. These are beautiful verses. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us for our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us. So great is his love for those who fear him. And, and this is the important verse to me. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions so our sins from us. It's a beautiful picture. As far as the east is from the west. Someone told me something once about this verse that I like. It's not scripture. It's not magic. It's not prophecy. It's just a nice way to think of it. And that is... Think about how far east is from the west. If you were to start from here and go east and go around the world, you would always be going east, right? Always going east. If you were to go north, you'd hit the North Pole and you'd be going south. But east and west are far from each other because you're always, always going east. This is how far he's removed our sins from us. He does not see them. In Isaiah, he says, I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. 2 Corinthians 5:21 it says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an amazing fact. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, we're not just forgiven. God no longer sees our sin. I had a manager, one of my first managers, that he forgave, sort of. (laughs) But when I had first started, we were peers, and he got promoted to be my manager, and we had had something where our former manager, who managed both of us, had told us different things. And so we implemented something differently, and we had a conflict. But once we realized, hey, we've been told different things, he said, he told me, oh, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, I understand why this happened. And every... Year thereafter, and three years later at promotion time, he brought this incident up. This incident that he had agreed didn't even matter because we had different instructions. That was forgiving in name, but not forgetting. Right? If we've placed our faith in Jesus, he does not see our sin. He only sees the sacrifice of his son. And yet, I think, I do, I feel a lot of guilt over things that I do wrong, and sometimes that guilt can become a bit paralyzing. We will struggle and we will fail, that's for sure. Psalm 14.3 says, All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. But we know that we are forgiven. We know that we are forgiven, and we know that the future sins we commit are also forgiven if we've put our faith in Jesus. So this, to me, forms the basis of how we can let go and let God. This is one of the phrases um, that I think are the top two Christian drive-by sayings. (laughs) Let go and let God. You know, when someone's struggling with something and you say, let go and let God... I think the underlying message is, let go and let God, I'm going to lunch, so you deal with it, right? The other one is, everything happens for a reason, uh, which is the Christian way of saying, it stinks to be you, (laughs) (laughs) Those two phrases, I think I do want to urge some caution. If you're not in relationship with a person, and you say that to them as a casual thing, it does not have the effect that you intend These are truths. Everything works according to God's plan, right? We can let God control. We can give God control. But if you say it casually or flippantly with a person where you don't have any relationship with them, it will make them think, so I guess God's plan for me is that this horrible thing happens, right? So really, just a little side note that I think you should be in a relationship with a person. Don't use the drive-bys. But what I think let go and let God means is you can let go of the fact that in the future, you will not be perfect. In the future, you will sin. God has already forgiven that. Don't let the fact that you know because we live in a broken world, we live in a fallen world, don't let that fact stop you from trying to be what God wants you to be. Don't let that stop you from coming, trying to become more like Jesus I I have an example of letting things so uh, capture your mind that you don't You're unable to live. Uh, Once again, my movie fan thing comes up. There is a movie that came out in 1995. It's actually made for TV and shown on TV in England, but it came out here in the movie theaters. I remember this movie very well. Saw it with some very good friends, Laura and I did. And I had made an unfortunate beverage choice at the beginning of the movie in terms of volume and was in severe need of a bio break during the middle of the movie, but it was so funny, I did not want to leave the room, because I just knew some great line was coming, some great thing. It's called Cold Comfort Farm, and it's the story of a very, very gloomy farm in England. The farm is so gloomy that the four cows that they have are named Aimless, Feckless, Useless, and Worthless, right? Did not have a cheery outlook on life, and the 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 movie is about this city girl who comes to live with them and tries to remove some of the gloom. But the reason for a lot of the gloom is one of the characters who is uh, the matriarch of the farm. She's probably 80 years old at least. Uh, Her name is Aunt Ada, and her last name is Doom, D-O-O-M, Aunt Ada Doom. But she stays mostly in her room. But the thing that she says over and over is, I saw something nasty in the woodshed. So when she was a very little girl, she had some instant, and I always thought this was like she saw a dead animal or something that scared her. The movie never tells you what it was. But when anyone in her family tries, anyone in her family tries to make life a little more pleasant, she says, I saw something nasty in the woodshed, and you have to do what I say. We're not going to do this because I saw something nasty in the woodshed. Now, later on in the movie, this city girl comes to her and says, are you sure? Are you sure you saw something? She says, well, it may not have been the woodshed. It may have been the tool shed or the bicycle shed, but it was a shed. I know it was a shed. She had forgotten what the thing was, but she, she couldn't even remember what the whole thing was, but she let it dominate her life and dominate the lives of others. And I think it's easy for us to do that because we have something we struggle with, we have a temptation we struggle with, and we say, why should I even bother trying? Why should I even bother trying? I just know I'm going to fail. How could I ever represent God when person X knows me so well and knows the ways that I fail that they'll just laugh at me if I try to do something positive for God? God knows this. God has forgiven it already. Let's read our final verse in Hebrews for today. This is Hebrews 4, verse 16. It says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That mercy and grace is a guarantee already. There's one word in that verse that I really like. Confidence. Confidence. We can approach God's throne, the throne of the God of the universe in confidence because we know that if we mess it up and when we mess up, it's already forgiven. It's already forgiven. So my question to you this morning as you're thinking about application is, do you act and behave, interact with other people with the conviction of a person who knows they have been forgiven? Do you have confidence. Do you have that confidence that you can serve God and that he will not condemn you, but that he will forgive you? And the other question I have is, can you share that confidence with others? Can you share that confidence with others? A really great verse, I think here is, I say this every time, it's a really good verse. See, I think the Bible's good thing right? So, um, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 20. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That was God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Love the use of this word reconcile. I was going to use as an example reconciling your checkbook, but for a lot of people who attend here, I would have to explain. Checks were what debit cards used to be. They were these pieces of paper, right? And other people reconcile, but the industry I work in—it's um, we test new medicines, and when we do that, we have to set up a trial, a clinical trial of new medicines, and we have to write down every side effect that happens in those trials. But some side effects are so severe—they're called serious—that you have to tell the FDA about them right away. So you have this record of everything that happened in the clinical trial but you have a sort of different set of records because you've got to report it so fast. It's kept in a different place. But at the end of the day, if you say somebody had a heart attack, it needs to show up in the record of the clinical trial and in the record that you showed to the FDA. Those things should match. And the process that we go through is called reconciliation, making things match. So what starts out as holy God, no sin, and his son Jesus, who committed no sin, and us over here, a sinner, we do things that are against God's will. Through Christ's death, we are reconciled so that we match. He doesn't see the sin. What he sees is the reconciled version. The sinner that Christ has forgiven, he sees Christ's death in our place. As we go today, let's remember that, that Jesus experienced every temptation we experience. If we follow Jesus, we are not just forgiven, but God no longer sees our sin. And because of this, we can approach God with confidence. But the first step in any of this is that Jesus is acknowledging you do fall to temptation, right? That you are tempted to fall and believing that Jesus came and died for you. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to talk to me, talk to Pastor Adam in the back when it's over. We can talk to you about that because that is the first step is accepting this free gift that God has given to us. But once we accept that gift, God no longer sees the brokenness and the place that we mess up. What he sees instead is the image of his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is our high priest. He has experienced every temptation that we have experienced and didn't fail. We have a model. We thank you that you forgive us and that when we do mess up, you only see the sacrifice of your son. I pray that you would give us all confidence today as we go forward in knowing this truth from your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.